0: Jim Bayheim, the Hall of Fame Syracuse University men's basketball coach.
1: They say, well, I'm not having fun. Well, at practice, it's not fun.
0: Bayheim first played for the Orange back in 1962 before joining the program as a coach in 1969. As for retirement,
1: when the year's over, I'm going to look at it and see how everything is. Coach
0: Bayheim opens up about a moment that forever changed his life. Surviving Cancer.
1: Strange you right up when you hear that word cancer. We traveled to
0: upstate New York to sit down with Jim Beheim on campus at Syracuse University for this episode of In Depth. You once said, quote, I don't know if I could have made it as an NBA player, but I knew I could make it as a coach. <laughs> Why did you feel that
1: way? Well, I definitely knew that I was a borderline NBA player. I had one opportunity to go up after I'd been out of college for a year. But I'd already gotten involved in coaching, and was that with the Chicago Bulls? Yeah, I or? had a, an opportunity in Chicago that I didn't make it. But the next year, after playing Detroit. in the Eastern League, I had a chance to go to Detroit. I uh, knew the coach. I played for the coach in the Eastern League, Paul Seymour, uh, and so, reunite with Dave Bing, and and be with Bing. But uh, they had three almost all-pro guards, and you know Jimmy Walker and Howard Comyes and Dave Bing. I knew I wasn't going to play in front of those guys and I'd already started coaching at Syracuse and felt comfortable with what I was doing. Um, I really felt at that point in time I had to make a decision a big a big decision because uh, I really wanted to play and liked to play but I just felt that coaching was uh, the best opportunity for me. I didn't envision it would turn out Quite as, as as good as it has in terms of being an assistant and being able to become the head coach here. Uh,
0: you really? I mean, you didn't think that way? No,
1: I don't. I didn't think that way. I thought I'd be an assistant coach and then, you know see what happens but um, the coach here was young and you know figured to coach another you know 20 years so I didn't think anything about being an assistant and getting the Syracuse coaching job I uh, thought a little bit about you know starting at another school going to a smaller school but it just broke that uh, coach Danforth left here just when I was thinking about uh, trying to find another job a head coaching job and the Syracuse job opened up just really within a week of when I would have had to make a decision so uh, it's just one of those things that turned out as as good as it possibly could and sometimes you have to be lucky a little bit.
0: And You interviewed I think at the University of Mm -hmm. Rochester that morning before uh, you were interviewing with the people making the decision for the head coaching job at SU, explain how you got the job and sort of the leverage you employed?
1: Well, I don't know. It was probably not the smart thing to do at the time, but I, I knew that I could probably get the Rochester job. And I, the Syracuse people were wavering, and I was the assistant coach. I'd recruited the players here and uh, had the blessing of the players and the former coach. And uh, they were wavering about you know, who they're going to bring in, and I said, look, I'm, I'm going to Rochester tomorrow. If if I don't if you don't think I can do the job here, I don't think it's a job that should be opened up. You know, I played here, I recruited all the players here, I helped us coach a team to get they got to the Final Four for the first time at Syracuse in a long long time, and uh, I felt that I should have the job, and I just kind of walked out of the room, and, and they. I think two out of three agreed that I should be, the, <laughs> be when
0: you, the coach. When you were walking out of the room, did you think in the back of your mind that you were going to get the job? I
1: didn't, no, I, I really wasn't sure. I, I just felt that uh, I had made my case and that I should, you know, be the head coach and um, I knew that I could go to Rochester and it was a good job, you know, Division Three. but it was a, a good job that uh, they talked about going to Division One and um, which never happened, but they they had talked about it, uh, but the head of the uh, selection committee came down within a couple of minutes and said, Oh you know you we 're going we 're going to go with you and and, uh, and, and it really needed to be that way because uh, we had recruiting and right issues issues at that time. We had to get right on the road. That was a huge. The next two weeks determined the, the the spring recruiting at that time. And we were recruiting Roosevelt Bowie and Louis Orr, two guys who we ended up getting that year. Who just made our program. Without them, we would have struggled uh, for a couple years. And with them, we. You know, we won 100 games in four years, which at that time was a lot of games. Right. And, uh, so the, the decision had to be made quickly, and I knew a two- or three-week wait, uh, wait would destroy recruiting and uh, put the program in a bad situation. And that's really why I pressed the issue so much, not so much that that I was worried I wouldn't get the job if it took two weeks, but two weeks would have been too long in terms of the recruiting world at that stage.
0: So fall 2001 you go to the doctor to be treated for an enlarged prostate and you find out you're told you have cancer. What do you recall from that moment being told?
1: Well you remember the moment believe trust me. Uh, in fact I'd been to the doctor and he called me on the phone to tell me. it was It's its its kind of straightens you right up when you hear that word cancer Um, And the good news right away was it was a small uh, sample within the prostate which uh, after you do the research as I had done quite a bit and continue to do a lot of research about it, um, that's a pretty good case scenario. If you're going to have cancer in the prostate, it's isolated, it's in a small area. So you do feel good about that. But, you know, it's still... Uh, a major surgery it's uh, right during basketball season you know you're gonna kinda try to take off when you can get it in and miss the fewest number of games which you probably shouldn't be thinking that way but that's what coaches think and I found a slot where I'd only miss two or three games and uh, found out who the best surgeon was and, and went to St. Louis to see Dr. Catalano and uh, got the surgery done and uh, you know when it's contained it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good outcome. I mean you're, you're pretty much cancer free and you're not going to have a problem with it. Uh, obviously the surgery is tough. Uh, there are side effects but I, I was able to come through everything good and uh, get back to coaching within a, a very short period of time probably too soon uh... we didn't play very well and i wanted to get back and got back out there in about fifteen days uh... Oh, wow. uh to, to, to coach but uh... you know it's, it's scary but uh... the more you find out about prostate cancer the more you educate people about it if you catch it early um, very curable um, and, and with very good long-term results and uh, that, that's what applied in my case, and uh, I, was, I was very lucky.
0: Your mom passed away from leukemia in her 50s. Your father passed away from prostate cancer in his 60s. Of those experiences and also having had cancer yourself, what was the most emotionally draining of the three for well, you? Well, they're all
1: <laughs> difficult. When my mom was going through, that was a, a very, very hard time. She was so young and... Uh, Came quickly and and uh, just you know was something that was ended too quickly and it was a difficult time. My father was uh, was he was older, uh, it was a little bit easier, but uh, cancer is is uh, is difficult for all of us. We all have been touched by it. Um, one of the reasons we fought so hard uh, to raise money for coaches versus cancer is because we've lost so many people that are close to us not only my parents but in the coaching profession um, and my best friend uh... i lost a cancer uh, a couple of years ago and it's just been very it's a very difficult disease and uh, the fact that you beat it is great but the fact that so many other people don't beat it um, really uh, makes you want to do as much as you can to to help do something uh, to fight cancer.
0: And you've made yourself very open to other people who have gone through similar situations, and most people have been touched by cancer. Uh, somehow. What's that dialogue like between you and the people who will reach out to you?
1: Well I get a lot of calls, I still do, and uh, I talk to them about my experience and and, uh, how I think there's too much uh, fear and darkness related to cancer and with prostate cancer specifically, which is what I deal with, uh, there's a lot of hope uh, with good treatment. Uh, that things are going to be perfectly normal and you're going to be fine and early detection is the key we talk about that all the time but i try to talk to people about what the outcomes are what what you're going to go through what you're facing um, That it, it looks difficult it looks uh, like a dark path but it's it's really something that you can get through in a short period relatively short period of time and get back to full speed Uh, within a couple months and with a a great chance of a very good outcome.
0: You mentioned coaches versus cancer. How did you Get involved in that and how much money did you ultimately end up raising
1: well norm stewart started coach versus cancer and and i got involved right away and i feel better that i've helped bring other coaches in you know the philadelphia coaches came in notre dame mike bray came in wisconsin's come in iowa has come in mark few has done an unbelievable job at gonzaga uh, raising money and, and so we've been able to get a lot of other coaches involved so that um it's it's now three or four million dollars every year that we can raise through coaches versus cancer and in awareness because I, I really believe coaches have that platform people know you're working on this and they see it and they hear your message of early detection early treatment that 's the best way to beat cancer so I, I think that 's what makes me feel good about it uh, the calls I get from people who Got tested who found out they had cancer who got it taken care of and are now going to be healthy and those are the, the good things that you think about
0: I want to take you back to your younger days uh, your father how would you describe him
1: you know he was a lot like me uh, you know a stubborn tough uh, competitive guy uh, I'm lucky because I got my mother's side and mixed in there, and she was very nice, very uh, kind of. Even though she was competitive, she was a good competitor. If she lost, she was she was okay about it. And so I think I got a little bit of that to balance out my father, who was it would win at all costs. You know, he wanted to win. We, every game we ever played, you know, it was to the for the blood. You know, it was not for fun. We never played whether it was cards or you know a kids game or ping pong or pool or golf we played to win and when we played ping pong he beat me when we started out 21 to 2 21 to 1 Twenty-one to three. <laughs> it's funny
0: you say that. I read somewhere your your best friend uh, remembers when you guys were six or seven watching you and your father play ping-pong. Oh, where yeah. I mean, he would nail the ball oh, as, yeah. as hard as he could, yeah. so you could barely yeah. touch it.
1: No, he would. He scored every point. You know, usually a parent is going to let you win a couple points, but never did. And then, it, you know, eventually it got to twenty-one to ten and twenty-one to fifteen and one day i beat him he put the racket down and that was it we didn't really? play again <laughs> really <laughs>
0: the true story what was that like for you when you he finally beat him you just walked out
1: and that was it and i said okay and we did that in every sport I beat him and everything, but it took it took a long time.
0: <laughs> and he had uh, he limit he was limited some of the physical physical activities he could do because he was shot by his brother accidentally right. when he was younger. and I guess the bullet was lodged in his, uh, his spine, in near, his back. near his spine, but very competitive oh, as yeah. you say, I saw a quote that you gave somewhere where, you said, uh, when I shoot hoops with my four-year-old, I try to beat him because my father tried to beat me.
1: <laughs> How true is It's that? a little true. I'm a little bit uh, more forgiving. Uh, I, I can let him score and let him win a little bit too. But uh, uh, I think it was good for me. I think it was something that made me what I am today because it was always hard. I was skinny. I wasn't that strong. Um, you know, I, I made it through high school. I was a walk-on in college. Um, I wasn't physical. I had to work and earn it. And if I hadn't had that mentality, I, I'm sure I would have given up someplace along the line. It was difficult. And uh, so,
0: so you think absent of having a father as no, yeah. tough as he was, uh, it, it would have prevented you from having some of the success oh, you I had?
1: absolutely. I don't have any doubt about it. I would have never become the player I was or the... Competitor that I, I, I am to to get to this point, I, I don't think it ever would have happened.
0: You passed up partial scholarship offers from other programs to walk on to the Syracuse University men's basketball team, a team that I think had won something like 14 games the previous three seasons. Yeah.
1: Why do it? Well, I thought Syracuse was a big school. It was a could be a you know it was a, we just Syracuse had won the national championship in football, so you know. It's, Potential. We built a brand new facility, and I really thought I was a good enough player to play at Syracuse, even though I wouldn't have a scholarship initially. Uh, So I think, you know, being the best player in my area, you know, I thought, well, you know, I I should be able to play there, and that's going to be the best place, and I can win a full scholarship. The other schools, Colgate or some place like that, I'd I'd have a partial scholarship, but you never get a full scholarship. So. Um, and and I, I really underestimated how good Syracuse was going to be and the type of players that were coming in here. I mean, not just Dave Bing, but the best player in Long Island, Norm Goldsmith, the best player in New Jersey, two of the best players in New York City. So I, I kind of a little bit underestimated how tough it was going to be, and and it, and it was very difficult. But. Uh you know, I was good enough to get a scholarship after one year, which was uh which was huge. I mean it really was, but uh and then be able to play. But it was a gamble, you know, looking back on it now, I wouldn't advise somebody to do what I did. Really? No, I wouldn't. I'd say, go to the other school, you're sure you'll play there. Although at the time, Colgate was better than Syracuse, really, in in all honesty. Um, So I I thought I had an easier opportunity at Syracuse than there really was. Fred Lewis was a great recruiter, he brought in a great recruiting class backed it up with another great recruiting class. Uh, so it was more, more difficult than I thought, but it turned out, turned out
0: very good. What do you recall from the first time you moved out of your parents' home, right back when?
1: <laughs> Moving into a dormitory? Sure. Uh, it was uh, different. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of good to be on your own, but it was, you know, I was from a small town and uh, I had a graduating class of 70 and I had 82 people on my freshman floor and uh, because I wasn't on scholarship I didn't room with I didn't have basketball players around me so I had uh, just student body guys all freshmen and it was you know it took me two days to register for classes I mean I had no idea what I was doing.
0: How about what was involved the first time you purchased a home for yourself?
1: Well yeah, I know, again, every time I had apartments and, you know, I didn't have a clue about anything like that. I just, you know, I was so involved in in coaching basketball and thinking about basketball. When you're young, when you start out in coaching, you don't care where you're living. You don't care what your bed's like or what furniture you have or, or anything.
0: How about the favorite feature of your home today?
1: Uh, probably the only thing is the television, I mean, I just, you know, that's about all I know about, <laughs> you know, it's the only event that I had any participation in, my wife fixed the entire house, and inside, outside, and everything about about it, and uh, I learned early that that's something you should stay out of, That's your your wife does that, don't have any suggestions, just agree to whatever is said, it took me a long time to learn that lesson, but that's the lesson, yes, that looks good, yes. That's a good idea. What do you think about this? Whatever you think. That's the way you respond to those. Don't, and do not have an idea, because it will not, unless it's the right idea, you're in trouble. <laughs> I want to take you back
0: to a moment that you'd probably rather forget. Uh, 1987 uh, national title mm-hmm. game uh, versus Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, how well do you recall Every the point. final like 10 seconds well, of that I remember game? it all.
1: I remember it all. We had...
0: Could you take me through what you were Well, remember? we
1: controlled the game. We had a great opportunity to win. We had a six-point lead. We had two or three open shots when we had an eight-point lead that we were in and out on, and they came down and scored. We had a couple free throws we missed, and you know we just played a great game and Indiana you know they hung in there and they deserved to win because they made the plays at the end but um, you know we we had a really golden opportunity to win the national championship we really did and uh, when they scored with about five or six seconds ago we only had one timeout left and you know we we, we really didn't have options uh, we played Georgia and the uh, in in the regional in '96 to get to the final four, in the semis, and we had the uh, same thing happen. They scored was six seconds to go. We had two timeouts, so we were able to throw the ball at half court, take another timeout, and then make a good play. Indiana, we had to throw it long, and we just didn't complete it. And uh, it it was a, a very difficult loss. Uh, uh, Key Smart not only made the last shot, but he made three or four other great plays at the end of that game. He 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 by himself really won the game for indiana and uh, we just couldn't make a play at the end there was probably seven or eight things that could have we could have done or could have made a play and it just you know didn't go our way and uh, you end up losing a heartbreaker and when you get that close to a national championship uh... that was our first time and you know even though we weren't favored it, you know you get that close It it took 16 years to get over that game. Until 2003, when we won in New Orleans, where we had lost in '87. Um, That's the first time that that '87 game got out of my mind. Really? First time. Took 16 years.
0: So the final score that '87 game was uh, Mm 74-73, Indiana. Did you ever watch tape that game?
1: You know, I waited a long time. I, I, I saw a couple highlights by accident on tape, but I never really watched the whole game. I, I ended up watching different parts of it at different times. But usually, my my philosophy's always been: when you lose the last game of the year, I usually walk away because oh, okay. you know you look at it and you say, "Well, we could have done this." You know, usually when you lose a game, you look at it, the film right away, to say, "Okay, we let's fix this. We can fix that." Once well, the last game of the year, there's nothing to fix. It's over. And so I, I'm very reluctant to watch that last game of the year uh, again.
0: To what extent was there ever a point you doubted that you would actually win a national title? Not, not that you could, but that you would.
1: Well, I, I think there's always that doubt. I mean, it's difficult to do. You know, we had a great chance in 87. 96, we got there. I think Kentucky was better than us, you know, but we played well. We had a chance. There was a couple other years, 90, 89, I thought we were, we could have gotten there and won it, you know, lost close games, um, but you, you worry about whether you're going to get there, and it is important to win. I mean, uh, until you get there, everybody kind of says, well, I'm, I'm pretty happy, <laughs> but the reality is you're not happy if you don't win a national championship, if you're in a, in a situation at college where you have a team that can get to the final four, uh, then you feel uh, you wouldn't be uh, happy if you didn't, have, didn't win at least one national championship.
0: That 2003 national championship season, uh, Carmelo Anthony, what did you most respect about him?
1: You know that he never thought of, he. You know he probably way way back deep in his mind knew he was going to be out of here in one year. The way the season was progressing, but he never thought about it. He really he really didn't. He thought about winning the national championship, and he focused on that. He didn't try to score points. He just tried to play basketball. And I remember I think it was the Oklahoma State game. He was having a bad game. We were winning. He was just when we won the game. He was happy as could be. A lot of guys, if they're thinking about the pros, knowing there's pro scouts sitting there, would be, uh, I didn't have a good game. Team. He he didn't care. He just wanted to win the game. And in fact, he, he didn't play great in the tournament until we got to the finals. The last two games, When we got to Texas. I um, mean, he just took us on his back. Cause I I thought Texas was a great team, but Carmelo was. I mean, he played the best game. Of the year, now for a freshman to go out there in the semifinals of the national championship and play his best game of the year, that's hard. That's unusual. You think they're going to be a little nervous, and then against Kansas in the final, he played even better against a great team.
0: And he says, regardless of what he ever accomplishes in the NBA, winning that national championship will be the highlight of his career. How about the fondest memory for you of that national championship season?
1: You know, I mean, when you finally win it, there's just there's no feeling to quite describe it because you know you you don't know if you're ever going to win a national championship, and certainly in that particular one, you know there was a, a lot of doubt that we're going to win a national championship that year. Uh, so, you know, we weren't rated preseason. We struggled during the season at times. Uh, we lost at Rutgers, and uh, you know we had some tough games, and you know, but we got it going at the end of the year and. Uh, The the players believed more than anybody I've ever been around, once we got going, that they were going to win. We were down 25-8 to against Oklahoma State, a very good Oklahoma State team, and our players never had any fear. They never doubted that they could win that game. That was the toughest game that we had. We had an unbelievable comeback in that game. So I think just the belief that the players had, was was uh, was a tr- was tremendous.
0: Tell about some of the letters you received following that championship victory.
1: Well, it was a lot of letters, a lot of phone calls. Of, you know, diehard Syracuse fans who. Really, yeah, any that
0: really stick out to you? You know, you just
1: a couple guys, uh, three or four guys got together and they've been Syracuse fans for thirty years, and they were together that night, and you know, it's like this is it. <laughs> this is the happiest moment of our lives, you know that kind of thing. Which I don't know if it should be that big, but uh, uh, it, it was good for our fans. We we have great fans. I mean, you know, we, we're a town of 200,000 people. We have 33,000 people come to a basketball game with no parking. Uh, those are those are pretty good fans.
0: I want to take you back to uh, 1992. The NCAA's infractions committee ends up putting the Syracuse University men's basketball team on probation for two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, A one-year suspension from postseason play is levied due to violations they'd found dating back to, like, 1984. Looking back on that, what would you say you learned from that whole experience? Well, the
1: the violations were in little things here and there, but they added up, and, right. and that's you know what, what that was about. Uh, we were one of the few teams, the last teams, to be taken out of the tournament for that type of violation, and they, they stopped taking teams out after that. Uh, it was a crushing blow, um, and, but it was just one of those things when you look back at it, um, you know, our kids... Uh, didn't get a lot of money, you know. Like one kid got a twenty-dollar discount on something, another kid stayed overnight at somebody's house when it snowed and they couldn't get home. That's a violation. Right. Um, there was a lot of stuff like that that, you know, we 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 got our players and, and try to isolate them more from the community. In that situation, there was nothing egregious. It was just a number of little things that uh, that added up and. You know, we had to, to pay that price. It was a very heavy price, a steep price, and uh, you know, we had to, to get through uh, uh, a long, prolonged investigation which hurt you in recruiting and hurt you, uh, hurt you for years, and uh, we were able to, to work through that and overcome it, but it was a, a difficult time, a difficult lesson.
0: And, of course, everybody has their opinion following an incident like that. I know Dick Vitale thought the punishment was appropriate, but then you have, like, Sports Illustrated saying it was a slap on the wrist and you should have been out as coach.
1: Oh, w- no, nobody w- thought that. I never saw that at okay. any time or at all, and I didn't hear Dick Vitale say that. Oh, right. No, and, he he and, didn't say uh, that. I was saying and Sports and Billy Packer, Illustrated. Billy Packer actually thought it was way excessive punishment because they normally didn't take teams out of the tournament. There was no... Recruiting edge, it was uh, it was extra benefits on campus, and it wasn't, you know, big things, it wasn't right. cars and things, but... Uh, was there ever a time you thought people, your job was... No, most okay. people thought it was excessive. No coaches were involved in this stuff. It was stuff that, as an athletic department, we should have overseen better, and that was the criticism, that we didn't, uh, as an athletic department, oversee uh, the student-athletes and what their interaction was in the community. And uh, when you looked at the detail, it was very little, very small amounts, but it was enough that the uh, NCAA deemed it was significant, and w- we went through that, but there was never a point in time. The coaches were, you know, I didn't even go to the hearing. They, they didn't ask for the coach to come to the hearing because it was more an athletic department issue. It had nothing to do with uh, coaching tenure or anything like that.
0: There's always talk of the media scrutiny being intense in the large markets like New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Syracuse is obviously a a small market, but the Syracuse University men's basketball team is really the only show (laughs) in town. So, I mean, how would you compare the scrutiny from a, a, a large market team to that of your team in Syracuse? Well, there's,
1: there's pluses and minuses. If you're in New York City and you want to go to dinner, you can, you can be the most well-known coach in the world. You can still go to dinner in New York where nobody knows you. Uh, you can't do that in Syracuse. Uh, it's different. You know, you, after the, as the years go along, you, you become accustomed to, to what your job is and, and uh, what the, all these outside influences are. And eventually, probably after 30 years or so, uh, it doesn't bother you so much about what's going on, and you just focus on your team and uh, and get ready. That doesn't mean you you like criticism. And I might react to it. I might be say something. I, I enjoy reacting to the media. I think that's kind of the fun part of People think I don't like the media. It's not really true. I actually like. M- the vast majority of people I deal with in the media, I, I like. They're guys I really like. Very few that I don't like. I might not like something somebody says, and it might be a good friend of mine. But uh, uh, And so I might react
0: to it. And, and that is something worth touching on, because you do get a bit of a bad rap for, you, you know, when you, you'll call somebody out for something they said or wrote, sometimes you can come off as a bit yeah. of a you-know-what. But what people fail to point out is that you're open to giving your number to members of the media, and you almost always return uh, a media member's call. I always call. return. This, this I return a-
1: every call unless it somehow gets lost in the system. But uh, right. So I mean, you, no, you I, don't Sometimes get- I come out. I'm a little too harsh. You know, I, I don't mean to to be quite that harsh, but uh, yeah. I mean, I like to react. If somebody says, I'll react to it, and then I move on. And my only criticism of the media would be that uh, the media cannot move on. If you criticize them, they live with it for the rest of their life and they hold it in the back of their mind and they want to get back at you someday. And uh, it's just the way it is, and I realize that it's it's reality. I'll get upset with something you say or somebody writes, and I'll make my point, and then I'm, I move on. It's over. You know, we'll go to the next phase. There's no grudge. It's the same way you coach. I get mad at players. I mean, I get really mad at some of my best players. I get mad at them, and then the next day, I've completely forgotten about it, and uh, you move on. That's important.
0: How long do you think you'll continue to be head coach for Syracuse? I've absolutely,
1: definitely decided never again to predict when I would not be coaching at Syracuse because I was wrong every time I attempted to do that. Um, You know, I come into this year, I'm going to coach as hard as I can, I'm going to do the best job I can this year, and when the year's over, I'm going to look at it and see how everything is. Uh, I know that I I like, I love coaching, I I feel as strongly about it or stronger about it now than I ever have, Uh, but we have a good plan in place here. Um, But I anticipate coaching now and in the future, but uh, I think The one thing I've heard from coaches who I've talked to who've retired, a lot of coaches have said that they retired too early, and I think that's a mistake that I don't want to make. A lot of people think you you shouldn't stay too long, but I think I'd rather stay a little too long than get out too early, because then you're going to have a lot of regrets. Stay a little bit too long, I don't think there's there's that much of a regret.
0: How how about this one then? Why do you still coach?
1: I like to get a team. I love basketball. You know, it's simple really. A lot of people make up a lot of things working with people, working with kids. You know, I, I like that, but I love the game. I love the game of basketball. I like to get a team ready and to see if I can get a team to play the game the way it can be played, the best it can be played. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to win 30 games. It might, maybe the best this team can do is win 20. That's, that, that'd make me feel good if I felt, you know, I got the mo- Probably would never feel I got the most out of a team because that's the way we are. Uh, we're never satisfied. We're never really pleased with what the result is unless we win the whole thing. Uh, but every year it's, I, I feel the exact same when I started. Let's get this team to play the best we can play. And uh, as long as I feel that way, you know, I'll I'll probably keep doing it. But at some point in time, uh, there'll come a time when you say, you know, I just am not going to be able to get this team ready the way I'd like to get them ready. And that's that's when you have to step down.
0: You once said coaching in the NBA would be fun, would be challenging. Mm -hmm. How much consideration have you given to it in the past?
1: I never really gave it a lot of consideration. I, I think it's a different uh, type of, of job. I think it's it would be fun. You're coaching the best players. Um, you don't have to worry about recruiting and, and a lot of other day-to-day things, but it's more pure coaching. Uh, but I, I've never really uh, thought of, about being an MBA
0: coach. How about the best coaching offer you've ever received that would have caused you to leave Syracuse you should know, you have taken
1: I, it? I had a lot of people call me, a lot of, of interest. I, I've never considered leaving Syracuse at any time.
0: It's, tell about the story, and I know it's that of legend now, of uh, you being on vacation with your first wife and Rick Pitino mm-hmm. and his wife in Hawaii and talking about oh, I mean, ideal places to live. Well, we were
1: actually we were in Bermuda. Oh, Bermuda, I had, uh, okay. Uh, in, you know, it was just one of those. We were sitting on the beach. It was a beautiful day, and we were talking about places to go and live. And we said, "Well, where would you like to live?" To I think my wife, and she said, "Well, I, I think San Diego," and which is beautiful. And Joanne said, uh, "I think she said uh, Paris, Paris, friends. That would be Joanne." And I think Rick said uh, Miami. And they looked at me, and I'm, I'm really sitting there, and I'm like going. Oh, You know, Syracuse, you know, I like Syracuse. And he just got up and walked down the beach. It was a true story, true moment. I was serious, you know, I'd like to live in Syracuse.
0: Does that still hold true? Still holds true. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger, and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever
1: else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.